0: Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We have been going through the parables this summer. Normally, summer through the Psalms, we've been doing a little summer through the parables. This summer, we have been enjoying ourselves. Um, we have gone through some well-known parables, uh, such that we're going to go through uh, over the next couple of weeks. We've gone through a couple that aren't as well known, maybe a little bit more tricky to understand, but hopefully, Lord willing, maybe now you would understand a little bit better. Um, but The reality is all of these parables are going to ultimately terminate on the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to look at. We want to stare at the grace of Jesus Christ lavished upon us. And what I want to do, what I thought would be appropriate to do over the next four weeks, we're going to look at the parable of the prodigal son. Um, specifically, we're going to look at it over the next three weeks. Uh, this week, we're just going to look at the intro to the parable of the prodigal son. That name, as you probably know, is a little bit of a misnomer, uh, parable of prodigal son. We're never really given uh, uh, the idea of one son. It's actually... Uh, Opens up with uh, two sons. Jesus says a man had two sons. But I want to dive into a very well-known parable. This is very well-known by a lot of non-believers. A lot of non-believers would use the term prodigal or would use the term um, that that Jesus uses for this man who spends everything. I want us to see the grace of Jesus. J.C. Ryle talking about Luke chapter 15 says that there is probably no chapter of the Bible that has done greater good to the souls of men than Luke 15. Probably no greater chapter in the Bible. Why? Because it enables us to see our sinful depravity, our lostness. It enables us to see Jesus' love for us. It enables us to see what he goes through to get to us. It enables us to see repentance. Repentance. We see ourselves so clearly in these parables. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend the next four weeks looking at these parables, these three that Jesus has told two today, uh, just the one for the next three weeks after. And then uh, Brian is going to preach part two of his message on the parable of the the signs that are to come, that are to point to Jesus' second coming. And then we're going to have one more parable, and then we'll be done for the summer. We'll be back to the school here, back to September, back to John chapter 9. But I hope that these next few weeks together would truly be an encouragement to your soul as they have been to mine studying these verses. I love these verses. My favorite parable is Matthew thirteen forty four. Um, we studied that a, a number of weeks ago. Uh, a man who finds the treasure in the field and over his joy for that treasure, he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. Um, I love that parable. It's my favorite. My second favorite is this. This parable is the longest of all the parables. Most ink spilled on the parable of the prodigal son than any other. And we find ourselves in Luke chapter 15. I want to give us a little bit of context, so let's set the stage just a little bit very quickly together to, to hone in on why Jesus spoke these words about the prodigal son. The book of Luke is the longest gospel. It actually has... Fewer chapters than Matthew, but it has more words than Matthew. So it's the longest of all of the Gospels. And the entire point of the Gospel of Luke can be summed up into one little phrase. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's the whole point of Luke's writing. He wants to prove to us Jesus is a seeking Savior. He came to seek and to save the lost. The book of Luke is divided up into three main sections. The first section is chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 9, verse 50. It covers the prologue of the book, the introduction, the birth of Jesus, the initial beginning of the ministry of Jesus, and the great Galilean ministry of Jesus. First nine chapters. The second section of the book is chapter 9, verse 51, to chapter 18, verse 48. And this is all his ministry in Judea. It's the great Judean ministry. uh, Months leading up, about six to eight months leading up to the cross. At the end of that comes the third section, the end of chapter 19 into uh, the end of the book, chapter 24. This is the cross, Passion Week cross, resurrection, road to Emmaus, all of those different things. So three sections. The middle section is 10 chapters long. In that middle section, there are 20 parables that are given, that are recorded for us. And in the dead center of the middle section of the Gospel of Luke is Luke chapter 15. I don't think that's a coincidence I think it's the peak of all of these parables, 20 parables that are given between Luke chapter nine, verse 51 to Luke chapter 19, verse forty-eight. 20 different parables. And the dead center of that mass of work um, is the parable of the prodigal son. So what I want us to do is I want us to ask the question, why did Jesus teach what he taught in the parable of the prodigal? And to do that, we have to go earlier because the prodigal son parable is the third in a series of three. So there's two that come before it. And there's an enormous motivation for those three altogether that come before that. So let's read this text. We're just going to look at chapter 15 verses 1 through 10 this morning as we prepare to study in depth the parable of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15 verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and all the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable, saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it when she has found it? She calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Father, I pray that you would take us deeper into the glories of Calvary. We would see ourselves in these verses we would see the grace of God on display. God, we will find ourselves in these three parables very clearly, very easily. Whether the younger brother, lost, reckless, wicked, which we all are and all have been. But God, I know that we all struggle with being the older brother. Looking down on those around us. God, there's so much to learn in these verses. And so I pray as we take them slowly. That you would be pleased by your spirit to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We need your spirit. If he does not give us understanding. No matter how glorious these truths are, our fleshly minds will not comprehend them. So I plead with you, Spirit, be pleased to do the work you love to do, to get out of the way and to point us to Jesus. Thank you for doing that even now in this text that you authored so many years ago. Guide our time now, Spirit, and open our eyes to behold Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen. The reason that the parable of the prodigal son is ever even spoken by Jesus is given to us in the first three verses of Luke 15. All of the tax collectors and the sinners are coming near to Jesus to listen to him. All. It's a categorical statement. Everybody's just coming. Sinners and tax collectors. Sinners are either Jewish people who are not living under the Torah or just non-Jewish people. Um, So pagans or Jewish people who just have a disregard for the Torah, don't want to live in obedience under the law of God. Tax collectors are wicked crooks. Normally they're Jewish as well, and in their brotherhood with other Jews, they betray them. They're traitors. They're selling themselves out for Rome to earn money so that they can go cheat all of their brethren out. We've talked about tax collectors before, right? I would go up. If I'm a tax collector, Rome would tell me, hey, you want to work for me? You want to make money? I've got a job that can make you as much money as you want to make. Depends on how dishonest you want to be. So here I am, dishonest tax collector Patrick. I decide, you know, I'm going to make good on this deal. I'm going to earn a lot of money. So Rome tells me that Josh owes me $10 or owes Rome $10. Josh owes Rome $10 in taxes. So I get to go to Josh and I say, hey, you owe Rome $100 in taxes. And I give $10 to Rome and I pocket 90 bucks. So tax collectors were hated specifically because they're traitors. They're cheating. They're, they're playing for the Romans, so to speak. And sinners were hated because they are filthy, defiled. They're wicked. Usually you see prostitutes that are thrown into this category as well. You see this phrase often in Luke, actually, Luke chapter 19, verse 7, back in Luke chapter 5 as well, and you always see the religious leaders grumbling because Jesus is either going to, like Luke 19, going to a tax collector's house, and that tax collector's name in Luke 19 is what? Zacchaeus, the wee little man, was he? Or going to the house of formerly debased and debauched and wicked people who have repented and turned to christ for salvation he receives them he receives them that's what the pharisees say verse two they grumble the scribes and the pharisees the religious leaders the pastors of the day grumble they murmur they mutter they're cursing under their breath saying this man receives sinners and eats with them now that word receives is important because it sounds very passive i just sit here and they come to me and i eat with them and i teach them if they bring me a good meal from Chipotle, I would be more than happy to gladly receive them. So sounds very passive, but Luke uses this word "receives" very specifically six other times in his writing. And I want to give you the definition that he comes up with for this word, using it in context. Luke chapter two, verse twenty-five: Simeon receives the consolation of Israel. It's not translated "receive"; it's the same Greek word, but it's translated "eagerly awaits." the consolation of Israel. Luke chapter 2, verse 33. Anna the, high, the prophetess spoke to those in the temple who were eagerly awaiting the redemption of Israel. They're eagerly awaiting. Luke chapter 12, verse 36. Jesus says, Be like men who are eagerly awaiting the return of the master from the wedding feast. So Luke 15, when there's three other verses that we could go to, but Luke 15, when Luke uses the word receives, he's using a word that's not passive, it's active. It's seeking out, it's eagerly awaiting, it's longing for, it's trying to search down and find. So Jesus, in verse two, this man, Jesus, is eagerly awaiting, expecting, and looking for sinners and tax collectors. And he's eating with them. He's fine to have fellowship with them. This is Jesus' mission. Luke chapter nine, verse twenty nine through thirty two. Jesus said, I'm I'm not coming here for those who are well, I come for the sick. A physician comes to take care of sick people. I haven't come for those who are well. Pharisees, Sadducees, you think you're fine. You're righteous on your own. I haven't come for you. That is a saying that he gives in response to yet again the Pharisees and Sadducees saying, he eats with sinners and tax collectors. He receives them. So why are they so angry? Why are they grumbling? Why are they murmuring? Why do the religious leaders hate Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners, for receiving them. It seems strange to us. It seems strange to me because we all know sinners. We all are sinners. So if we know Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, I can eat with Jesus. I'm fine with that. I want to be with him. Why are they grumbling? Here's why. The, the Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. The, the scribes, the Sadducees, those are all the religious leaders. They're the pastors of the day. Because of that, they had a monopoly on God's favor, as it were. If you want to get to God and have God like you, we have the answer. We know what it is. What is it? Be good. Keep the law. Keep all of our rules. And we've got a bunch of them so that you can keep all of them. We have rules for everything. Do your best. Clean yourself up. Don't associate with bad people, with wicked people. Um, They had rules for this. Tax collectors weren't allowed in synagogues, they weren't allowed into the temple. They had a a rabbinic rule that said, quote, let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him nearer to the law. That's really helpful. How do you take a wicked man and turn him into a righteous man if you're not even allowed to bring him to the law? But that was their law. So in these moments, when the religious leaders see that Jesus is fine eating with the sinners, eating with the tax collectors, He's fine receiving them. They don't have to go through all of the religious rules that the Pharisees have made up. They can earn, not earn, but they can receive God's favor in a completely different way. Through Jesus alone, they realize that their monopoly on God's favor is in check, in jeopardy. Jesus claimed to be a religious man. He claimed to be much more than that. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be the son of God, and yet he's spending time with commoners. And he's not praising the religious people, but he's cursing the religious leaders. He treated everyone with the truth that they need to be forgiven for sins and they need to have approval with God or else they will be condemned forever. But the reality is he said, I am the way for that. You can be forgiven and gain approval with God through me. I am the only way, the only truth, the only life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So the religious leaders are hearing and seeing through this interaction that their work is now obsolete. If Jesus claims I am the way, their way is obsolete. I believe that you and I would be grumbling too if we suddenly discovered that our entire idealistic mindset of religion had been destroyed. Jesus is showing up saying, hey, you think that the circle is this small. The circle is actually this big and you thought you were in the dead center of it. You're not even in it. I think we'd be grumbling as well. They're angry with the grace that God has given through Jesus to those who would repent the sin and turn to Savior Jesus. So, verse 3, motivation. Because of that, so he told them this parable. This is very interesting. He's speaking to the Pharisees, and we know what parables are supposed to be for. We know they are used by Jesus to befuddle the truth. But this is probably the most plain parable of them all. There is a truth hidden inside this, but it's very uh, unveiled, as it were. You can see clearly. In fact, what Jesus does is he starts with the application. There's not even teaching in here. He just goes straight to the application. Wouldn't you do this? That's all he says. He just, hey, wouldn't you? Don't, Don't you do this? What he has to say is so well known. He's been saying it from day one. He knows they know this. And so he goes after their heart. He goes after their heart. All of Luke 15 is spoken as an answer to the accusation of the Pharisees and the scribes in verse two, that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them in each of these three parables that we're going to see are symmetrical in their concern. They're very alike, but they're also very distinct in their perspective, which is really, really cool. They all make the same point, but they each make points of their own, which I love about these parables. So you've got to take all of them together. If we only did prodigal son, we'd miss two distinct viewpoints from these parables earlier that we're going to see today. So we're just going to take these first two, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And in each of these parables, we're going to see three very clear, clear truths and realities. Reality number one, we will see the value of the lost object. We'll see the value of the lost object. Number two, we're going to see the attitude of the owner And number three, we're going to see the nature of the recovery. The value of the lost object, the attitude of the owner, and the nature of the recovery. Let's start in verse four with the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus says, what man among you? He appeals to their logic. No sermon is needed. He dives straight into the application. He's been preaching this sermon his entire ministry. I've come to seek and to save the lost. Wouldn't you do the same is what he's saying. Wouldn't you do the same? Make the connection, people. That's what he's saying to these religious leaders. Make the connection. What's the connection? What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and he loses one of them, he leaves the ninety-nine in the open pasture to go after the one which is lost until he finds it. He doesn't want to lose the sheep. He's sad over the loss of the sheep. He's counting up all of the sheep. So by very nature of him counting to know that I'm missing one, he's concerned about all of his sheep. And so he goes after the one. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. He's excited that he found his lost sheep. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. I have found my sheep which was lost. Very simple story. And he says, In the same way, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. There's joy in heaven over one person who comes back, who turns, who repents, and is found. Lost, but now found. Jesus loves to find dirty, wicked, rotten sheep, and he rejoices when he does. I love how he says that. He gives two questions. What man, if he has lost a sheep, won't go after him? I think all of us would say, yeah, we'll go after him. Uh, We don't even really know the idea of what it means to to own sheep and to take care of land and to take care of sheep as as your economy. But we know, hey, if you lose an animal, you're going to go find it. So we go, yeah, sign me up for that. I'll do that. What man? Oh, I would do that. Then he asks another question. And when he finds it, what man wouldn't take him, put him on his shoulder and go home rejoicing? That one, I think maybe we'd be split down the middle. The first one, we're all like, yeah, we'll go find him. But what we do once we find him, that might vary with our different temperaments. Some of us might throw him on the shoulder. Yay, I found him. And just skipping, saying, look, look, everybody, I found my lost sheep. Some of us may reprimand the sheep. Some of us may be very angry at the sheep. Some of us might not even put the sheep on the shoulder. That's like for for first class. You know, you need to walk home with me. You're not able to be on my shoulders. And rejoicing, no, thank you. I'd be grumbling the whole way home. Like, I can't believe if you would have just stayed in the fold. I wouldn't have had to do this, but I had to follow you. Maybe I lost another, you know. But Jesus doesn't do that with us. Jesus rejoices when he finds us. Have you ever felt like God looks at you and goes, man, I really made a wrong choice when I saved them"? Have you ever looked at your own salvation and thought, maybe God's up in heaven wondering, that was a bad call, and uh, if I had to do it over again, I would have changed that, can't, because I predestined it, so we can't do that. But if I had it to do it, this is just, have you ever felt like God is calling you back to the fold? You're walking, he's dragging you and going, why did you do this again? Brothers and sisters, our Savior, when he finds us in our filth, in our sin, in our wickedness, and in our mess, he rejoices. He's happy to see you. verse 7, he says, I tell you in the same way, all of heaven is going to rejoice. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. All of heaven is rejoicing. If you're full of your own righteousness, as the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes were, lavishing a celebration on the recovery of a lost sheep will seem strange, foolish, and stupid. If you're full of your own righteousness, you're looking, going, I didn't leave the fold. Why are you rejoicing when you found that guy? You know, he left on his own. He probably should have died on his own. You should be praising us for staying here with you. And that's exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes don't get. They're looking at Jesus saying, why are you rejoicing with these sinners? You should be rejoicing with us who have never sinned, they would say. We've never sinned. We've kept the law perfectly. This doesn't make sense to them. And so Jesus calls him out on that. Jesus says something at the end of verse 7. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. That's not meaning there are people, there's a class of people that don't need to repent. They get to go to heaven on their own righteousness. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that's how the Pharisees view themselves. The Pharisees say, we don't need to repent of anything because we've kept the law perfectly. If you were to ask a Pharisee, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? This is the Pharisee's answer. Number one, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am a son of Abraham. Number two, I've kept the Torah perfectly. I've kept the law perfectly. Number three, I have not associated with wicked pagans. I get in. See, there's nothing of those three things that has any bearing on what God has done for them. It's all who they are. I don't need to repent, a Pharisee would say. And so Jesus says... There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over a hypothetical ninety-nine who say, I'm sinless. God is more excited, more happy, and more joyful over the one. One commentator says it this way, There is no need to infer that Jesus' reference to ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance means that he saw the Pharisees and their ilk as really righteous. It's obvious from other things that he said, for example, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I would also throw in there the the curses, the woes that Jesus gives. He obviously does not see the Pharisees as being righteous. But to continue the quote, Jesus's words are both an explanation of his ministry to those who saw themselves as the ninety nine, which was logical on their own premises, and also an explanation of God's priorities as they truly are, since he really does rejoice more over the bringing back of the lost than over anything else. So here are the Pharisees and Sadducees. Here are the scribes, the religious leaders, and they are not rejoicing. And the kingdom of heaven is not belonging to them. It's very ironic that Jesus is calling out the religious leaders. And he's saying, you are furthest. You're, you're the farthest from the kingdom of heaven. And you're all Hebrews of Hebrews uh, huddling around your Torah, studying the Bible. And you're not even in the kingdom. You're the furthest away. That's the first parable. The second is very similar to it, but a little bit different. has the same point, but a different distinct perspective. The first parable shows the need for the search. We've got a lost animal, and we need to go find him. The second parable shows the nature of the search. The nature of the search. Verse 8, there's a woman. She has ten silver coins. That's a drachma. That's a day's wage. She has ten of them, and she loses one. But look at what she does. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house and she searches carefully until she finds it. So she's fine to spend money on oil to light a lamp. She's fine to spend time on sweeping the house, probably moving the furniture around. She's fine to spend time searching carefully until she finds it. So The first parable shows the need for the search. The second parable shows the nature of the search. Very, very diligent vigilant, scouring the whole house until she finds it. I don't know if you guys have ever done that with something that you've lost. Usually it's car keys. You're just looking for them everywhere. Maybe it's a TV remote. One time I was looking for my sunglasses. took me about 15 minutes to realize that I'm looking through the whole house, that they're in my hands. That's when you know you're sleep-deprived because you have three kids. (laughs) Um, This woman has lost one coin out of her ten. And she says, I'm giving everything else up for now to find that coin. I must find that coin. And she rejoices when she finds it. Verse 9, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me. I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Two very simple parables, very simple stories, the meaning of which is not really hidden the implications of which we just need to spend a little bit of time on. Implication number one, as I said, we, we see the, these three points in all of these stories in, in the account of the parable or of the prodigal son. We'll see it as well. Implication number one, we have value to God. We have value to God. This is why we're saying, my worth is not in what I own. This is a very uh, fine line. We want to be careful as we say this, but it's very clear in this passage we have value to God. For some people that would take this too far. We have worth in and of ourselves apart from God. We have the image of God placed inside of us. That is our worth, but it's based on God. This is a a, a slippery slope for some people, and you probably know uh, where you can go too far on this. This is why we sang, my worth is not in what I own. Two wonders here that I confess. When we look at the cross... We see the price that was paid for us. Look at that. We can see the value that God has placed upon our lives, and we also see our unworthiness, my worth and my unworthiness at the cross. That's why I love that song. And it fits perfectly for what we're saying this morning. It would have been so easy if it had been me, a hundred sheep, and you lose one. You're, probably, you're a shepherd, you're a businessman with sheep, you kind of cut your losses. We'll be okay. We lost one. Uh-oh, can't find it. Okay, let's go to sleep. It would have been easy for me to do that. Ten coins, you lose one. Well, it'll turn up sometime. I mean, if I lost it in the house, it's got to be here somewhere. I don't need to worry about it today. I'll find it later. But the owners of the sheep and of the coin are determined to recover their lost possessions. Why? Because they loved them. Their possessions had value to them. You and I are made in God's image. We're cherished and loved by the God of the universe. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. he desires that none should perish. He loves us. This does not at all diminish how lost and wretched and despicable we are. We can absolutely say with Martin Luther, we are worms. And we can say, and yet God has placed value upon us. I mean, just look at what our lostness looks like to Jesus. Of all the things he could have picked to lose, the first thing he picks is a sheep, stupid animal. Um, one commentator says, whenever Jesus uses sheep in the Bible to refer to us, it's a very well-intended spiritual insult. Um, we, we are sheep because we are stupid. Remember Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Sheep just wander, they lose their way. We need to be rescued. So for the first parable, Jesus picks something that has a very small brain, or maybe it's a very large brain but doesn't use any of it. For the second parable, he picks something that doesn't even have a brain. Let's just pick a coin. Inanimate object has no brain. But both have immense value to the owner. Do you want to know how wretched, how lost how sinfully depraved, how broken, how defiled, how ashamed you truly are, look at the cross. Look at the cross and see how evil your heart truly is. But if you want to see your value, you want to see how much God loves you, look at the cross because you will see the price that he paid to bring you to himself. There is value in these lost objects to the owners just as the lost spiritually in this world god desires that they would come in repentance to him we should too we should too number two implication number two god seeks us and rejoices in saving us god seeks us and rejoices in saving us this is our hope Not that we are at work, but that God is at work seeking and saving the lost. And what he seeks, he will always find. Taken together, these parables are an amazing picture of the grace of God. God is seen grieving over the lost, seeking them out, finding them and rejoicing once he has them. This is true of our God. If you are a believer here this morning, this is true of you. God rejoices over you. And if you are not a believer here this morning, God is seeking you. He's seeking worshipers, and he desires that you would worship him this morning. He has grabbed you in your lostness. He has sought and saved you. There's a beautiful story of John Newton. You remember John Newton, um, amazing gray slave trader that um, became a believer. Um, He was talking with a minister named William J. They had this conversation. They were talking about a mutual acquaintance that they knew, who had recently been converted. And William J. observed that the man had once attended his preaching, but that he was an awful, wicked character. And he said this, He might have gotten converted under my preaching, though I'm not too certain of it. But if he is, if this man, this wicked man is converted, I shall never despair of the conversion of anyone ever again. If that man can get saved, anyone can get saved, is what he's saying. And John Newton replied, I never did despair since God saved me. I've never despaired of the, of the reality that God can save anybody he wants to since I got saved because I'm the chief of sinners sought by God. I was lost. I had no way of getting back to God on my own. He seeks us and he rejoices in saving us. Let me give you some verses. You can write these down. Look them up on your own time. Isaiah 62, verse 5. Isaiah 62, verse 5 says this. As a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God rejoices over you. This is his chosen people um, in Isaiah. He's speaking to Israel. Um, But that's a, a promise that carries over as his covenant people now in the new covenant. He rejoices over us. He sings over us. He loves us. Jeremiah thirty-two forty-one. I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will faithfully plant them in the land with all of my heart, with all of my soul. I will rejoice over them. I want to do them good. God is a seeking God, and he loves us. He doesn't want any to perish. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and would live. Ezekiel 18.23 says the same thing. 18.23, do I have pleasure in the death of the wicked? No, rather that they should turn from their ways and live. God is a seeking God, and once he finds us, he rejoices. And all of heaven rejoices too. That brings us to the final implication. We see that we have value to God. Even as lost as we are, there is value to God. We see that God is a seeking savior and he rejoices when he finds us. And finally, number three, the nature of the recovery, the nature of the recovery. There's no, there's no better way to say this than just the nature of what was lost being found. And this is where you have to take the three parables together. Some go straight to the parable of the prodigal son and they say um, God, the father, is sitting on his porch waiting for the prodigal to come home. And that's representative of God in heaven, sitting in heaven, wishing that he could do something to bring his son home. But it's as if his arm, his hands and his arms are tied behind his back. He can't do anything. And he's waiting. And we are the ones who must go to him. Now, we would say that that's wrong. Number of reasons that's wrong biblically. But some would instantly go to the first two parables and say, well, there's nothing that they did. The first two parables, the sheep is lost and Christ goes after them and finds them. The coin is lost and the woman goes after and finds them. There's nothing about these two lost objects coming back and returning on their own like there is in the parable of the prodigal son. So some would say that God does everything, we do nothing. But we all know that that can be taken too far. So I think Jesus is so helpful in what he's teaching. He puts them all together in these few phrases at the end of verse 7 and verse 10. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who what? Repents. So he's lost, can't get to God on his own, and God chases him down and finds him. But Jesus does not say, I, will, I tell you the truth, in the same way there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who is found by God doing nothing on his own. He says this is about repentance. Same in verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In the parable of the prodigal son, we have a beautiful picture of repentance. And we cannot repent unless God seeks us and finds us first. We know that. We've studied that. It's both working together. When God saves us all in his own doing, and he gives us the gift of faith and repentance, we turn and we run to him. Martin Luther knew this. That's why in the 1995 theses that he put on the door in Wittenberg, the first of those says this, when our Lord and master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's all of God. Yes. It's God who acts first in our hearts. Yes. It's God who brings us back. Jesus said that those that my Father gives to me, I'm not going to lose any of them. I'm going to bring them all. I don't lose any of the sheep. But once God has acted on our hearts, we must, we will repent. And if we do not, then we are condemned. We are condemned. So Jesus perfectly says, I'm going to seek you and I'm going to call you to repentance. And I have sought you. If, if I have sought you and I have called you to myself, you will turn. You will find me more desirable than anything this world has to offer. So, I ask us as Christ Bible Church this morning, God is seeking the lost because they have value to him. Do you seek after the lost? Do the lost have value to you? Or are you somewhat like the Pharisees and the Sadducees with your arms crossed on the outside looking, going, man, how could they be involved in that much wickedness? looking down on those around you. Do you know the love of God, the love that he has for you, that in your lostness and in your hopelessness, he would pursue you and find you? Have you turned from sin? Have you repented? Do you see sin for what it is, that if you keep pursuing it, it will destroy you, and you need to pursue Jesus? Ultimately, the reason why I want to study these verses and study this parable in depth over the next three weeks is because, number one, I want to see the way that Jesus loves the lost so that we can be like him, actively seeking them, winning them to Christ with everything that we have. Number two, I want us to see our own lostness, our own depravity, to see ourselves as the wicked younger brother and to see ourselves as the legalistic older brother. We're going to see both. I want us to see that so that we can run to Jesus and be, number three, awestruck by the gospel of Jesus again. He is pursuing us. He has pursued you and is pursuing you. Do you hear his voice this morning? And will you answer the call to leave all and follow him? God, I thank you so much for your grace in our lives that while we in our weakness are lost and unable to be found, unable to return on our own, you have graciously given us the gift of effective grace that's calling us It's bringing us to Yourself. It's drawing us. God, even now, draw people in this room home. Call them home. May they know the love that they have lavished upon them in Christ. And God, I pray over the next number of weeks that we have together studying this passage, God, may we understand the gospel. May we understand the sinfulness of our own souls. And may we be blown away by the love that you have lavished upon us in Christ.